an organization will perform what it is, what it's measured against. And people will perform to the standard that they're measured against, right? So if you tell me problem solving or collaboration is important, but you measure me or evaluate me based on whether or not I do something better, faster, or more than my peer, then collaboration isn't important to you. That's Lieutenant Colonel Jacqueline Newell. One of the reasons for starting this podcast was to share more about the people in our innovation ecosystem that has begun to form over the past few years. Lieutenant Colonel Newell is one of those awesome people. She comes from a family of six, has been a problem solver all of her life, and she's since become the connective tissue between innovation groups that are igniting around the Army. And she pushes community and collaboration being some of the most important aspects of succeeding. Check out this conversation. This is Azimuth Check, the SparWorks podcast. You'll hear from exciting people about making your organization faster, more adaptive, and more committed. I'm your host, Chief Denoyer, an Army Chief Warrant Officer, and the 425th Spartan Brigade's Chief Innovation Officer. Today, we've got Lieutenant Colonel Jacqueline Newell. It's so dope to have you on Azimuth Check. So thank you for making the time to talk with me. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you're a Lieutenant Colonel in the Army and a Force Management Officer with assignments in Europe, in Special Forces Command, and some other places. Um, but where I want to start out is something I talked to you about the other day. It was, what's, what's in a name? Um, mm-hmm. when, we, when we were first introduced, I've, I've known you by Joe. Jacqueline to Joe. Can you tell us how, how'd you come to go by Joe? Uh, yeah, it's a fun story that I like to tell people about when I met my husband and, uh, and how our relationship began. When I met my husband, we were, uh, downrange in Kuwait and we had a, a mutual acquaintance and we were, uh, we were actually all in the trail party getting ready to like go home. And we were, you know, putting all of our division and brigade and battalion equipment on vessels to send them home. So we were like this rear party and uh, we would get together after work and meet up at the gym and go to the gym like at 10 PM and then go to midnight chow afterwards. Um, So, you know, we would just show up in our PTs and uh, I knew Mike and I knew uh, his friend was like his friend. I didn't even know his last name, right? Because we're wearing PT uniforms. And it took me about three days to realize that this was the funniest guy I'd ever met in my entire life. And so I'm like, uh, you know, you're, you're pretty funny. I don't even know your name. What's your name? And he kind of looks at me and he cocks his head a little bit. Like I'm asking him this complicated question. He says, what's my name or what do I go by? And I'm a little shocked that I at first don't even know how to respond. And I say, I didn't think it was that complicated. You know, what, do you, what, can, I, what can I call you? And he says, well, my name is Richard, but I go by Sean. I say, okay, so I can call you Sean. He goes, yeah. I'm like, that was harder than it needed to be. Is Richard like your first name? And Sean is like your middle name or your nickname? And he says, yeah. I said, okay, that's not all that uncommon. You could have just said, I go by Sean. Yeah. And he's like, well, what's your name? And I say, Jacqueline. And he says, wow, that's a lot of syllables. What do you go by? And now I'm like cocking my head like, who is this guy? And I go, Jacqueline. I thought that was pretty simple. And he says, uh, do you mind if I call you Joe? And I'm, now I'm like, wow. Uh, and yeah, like I, we're, we're not that close, but okay, like whatever, you know, because you can call me Joe. It doesn't mean I'm going to answer, right? Yeah. So this went on for a few weeks while we were all doing this, like putting our equipment and, you know, coordinating the movement of our equipment. And we redeploy and, you know, there's a, like an email that gets sent and then there's like an exchange of phone numbers. Um, and we're like, kind of just trading stories like, Hey, I'm, I'm getting ready to move. Hey, I'm, I'm getting ready to get out of the army. Um, you know, just chit chatting, right? Like nothing real big, just kind of like keeping up. And I, I get a random text one day and I know he's like home visiting his family and he says, Hey, you know, this is my mom's phone. You know, I don't, we're out and I don't have my phone with me. So, you know, you can call me on this line later. So mm-hmm. I'm like, a little ambiguous, but I'm like, okay, I, I think, I think I know who that is, right? Like, doesn't even like identify himself. Like yeah. Most normal people would. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is Sean, right? Yes. Okay. Good. Okay. Uh, 
I'm, I'm tracking what you're laying down. So uh, later on after work, I, I call the number and his mom answers the phone, rightfully so, right? It's his mom's phone. She answers it. And I say, you know, because I've got manners. Hello, this is Jacqueline. May I please speak with Sean? And I hear this yelling, like this very loud yelling, Jacqueline, how many girls are you dating? And I really, she's not talking to me, but three things immediately go through my mind. How many girls is he dating? Are we dating? Because I didn't think it was like that serious. Maybe he calls me Joe. And I say, Joe, maybe he calls me Joe. And she goes, oh, you're Joe. I go, yep, I'm Joe. And, you know, from pretty much that moment forward, right? Like I just began to tell people I go by Joe or I'd introduce myself as Joe or I'd sign my emails, Joe. Like I just became Joe, which worked out because we got married. But at the time we weren't even dating. I was just like, you know, like to avoid any confusion, any further confusion, I'll just go by (laughs) Joe because changing my name in the middle of my life, right. was a lot less confusing (laughs) than explaining to his mom that my real name was Jacqueline. Yeah. (laughs) That's so great. That's so awesome. Yeah. I I wanted to talk about your name because in the military, we, we go by our last names and in some circles though, we, we go on this first name basis. It's pretty common, right? Yeah. In your opinion, is there like, are we finding value in, in those little pockets of places that we go by first names? Yeah. I would say it's kind of a double-edged sword though, right? Because, uh, not just first names, right? But nicknames, right? Like there's something yeah. more personal, right? About a first name, a little less formal, right? About using somebody's first name than using their last name. Um, right. And it's sort of like, you know, the trust circle or the inner circle or the, like you're setting aside the formalities, right? Yeah. To, to work together as a team, there's this natural tendency towards collaboration and teamwork right. when you start using first names. And you know, you can look at uh, other services, right? Like in, in the Air Force, it's very common to use first names, uh, especially among officers. But even across the force, right? There's a lot of there's a lot of informality in right. using first names, and there's uh, reasons for that, that that include some of the the flying stuff and the you know being able to tell tell somebody that outranks you based on safety, right? Like or based on formation to get in into a position. And I think that there's value in that. There's value in setting aside formalities. And if you talk about like, when we talk about innovation, right? Like uh, formalities does nothing for spurring innovation, right? And democratizing, not just information, but problem solving, right? Because if, if I have to bring my rank to a table, right? In a problem solving right. situation, that's that's a bad setup, right? Like, and we talk about it all the time also, right? Like when you're mentoring somebody or correcting somebody, like if it starts off with like, I'm going to use my rank to influence the situation, or I have no influence in the situation because of my rank, then we're, we're stunting the opportunity to grow. And then you take it a step further and you talk about like nicknames. And uh, I think you and I talked about this before, but you know, there's a lot of like um, close personal sort of almost intimacy or vulnerability when you start using nicknames, right? And that's good and bad, right? The, the, there's, we have rank and hierarchy and structure for a reason. We don't want to throw it all away, but you start to see, and I've always seen in my career, even, you know, back when I was a young lieutenant, you know, officers that had nicknames also had better evaluation, right? Like they were more person. It was like, they were more personable. They were more liked by oh, other yeah. officers because you, you kind of let down, even further, not just, Hey, my, this is my rank. This is my last name. This is my first name. You can find me in the global. And then there's like the structure of like bosses kind of always call their subordinates by their first name. And, and I think it's supposed to be a little more like endearing or a little more personable or build rapport. But quite frankly, right. If your if your subordinate can't call you by your first name and you're calling them by their first name, it's actually a little demeaning, right? Like right. I don't need you to call me by my whole formal name, but it's like, uh, I want to know, like, I don't need to call you by your first name. In fact, if I respect you, I'm not going to. But if you, ex- if you're, if you're behaving one way towards me and you expect a different, you expect a different behavior back, then it seems a little unfair, right? But sure. even more so, when I say to a to a superior, you can call me this name, which isn't my given first name. That means I trust you, and we're like. Now you know something about me that isn't on my ORB and it isn't yeah. in my file and it isn't in my, you know, my gal, right? Like my outlook. Right. 
account. And so now all of a sudden, my superior officer feels like they know me a little better. Now we've got this added rapport. Uh, And I think you see that in other areas in the military, right? When we talk about aviators, whether they're in in the Air Force or in the Army and their their call signs, right? Uh, And, you know, especially, uh, you know, in the Air Force and the Marines, I think do a a much better job, right? Of like carrying those call signs and going by them. And like, this is my, like, this is, and a lot of them are, you know, a little embarrassing, right? Like there's an, (laughs) there's an embarrassment factor to it, right? And then you got to tell the story about how you got your call sign, right? And so there's like this, this like inner circle of trust and rapport and team, right? Like closer knit team because of that. Um, You see that in other like teams, right? Other small teams where people get nicknames. And so I think there's a value in that, but there's also, there's a danger, right? Uh, And so we, we have to be careful because, you know, if you throw, you throw everything out, right? And everybody everybody's got a nickname and everybody's going by their first name, then it's like, there are boundaries that can be crossed, right? That, that you can't really pull back from. Uh, and so like, it's not that if, if your organization is disciplined as the army should be, there's not a lot of danger, but sometimes, right? Like if the organization already doesn't have a lot of discipline in their processes or their transparency and communication, then that becomes very dysfunctional. Yeah. So there's a, there's, I like that you said it's a double-edged sword. Uh, yeah. There's the the side of psychological safety and and getting to know people personally. And you know, I just realized that we've been meeting once a week about on teams and talking about projects and initiatives and culture. But I don't think we've ever like talked about who you and I are as who like who you who you who are you as Joe and not as Lieutenant Colonel Newell. But like, where'd you grow up? What brought you into the army? Oh, well, probably because that's not a story that I tell very often, even to my closest friends. Um, I'm, I'm from New Jersey and, you know, there was a, a small TV show on MTV that made everybody from New Jersey embarrassed to say they were from New Jersey for a while. Um, but it's the true. Jersey Shore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, gr- I grew up in a, a town in Middlesex County, which is the middle of New Jersey and central Jersey, right near where Rutgers University is, their, their main campus in New Brunswick. And I went to, I was in the same school district. My parents lived in the same house the entire time. I graduated from high school and I left uh, very quickly and went to a small school in Atlanta called Georgia Tech um, <laughs> for, for my undergrad. And, and Georgia Tech, for people that are not from Georgia, uh, is, a, is a fairly expensive school. At least it was. It was about $22,000 a year back in 1997. Uh, and I got the, I got the, a talk from my dad uh, in about April of the year that I was going away to college. So, you know, for, for those of you who are young enough to remember the whole like college scholarship application process, you'll remember, as I do very keenly, even looking back 20 years, that um, April's too late, right, to find out that there's no money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a bit, yeah. <laughs> late is a good word. <laughs> So this is the chuck this up to conversations we probably should have had last September, October, November at the latest. But now you're telling me in April, you know, and you're not actually telling me there's no money. You're asking me, how are you paying for the school that you plan on going to that you got accepted to? And it's a little bit my fault, although, you know, as a young person, you know, I don't know what conversations I'm supposed to have with my parents. Right. Like, yeah, I have a daughter in high school now. I don't expect her to ask me things that she doesn't know to ask. Right. So like, how are you going to pay for it is a great conversation to have right after you ask the question, like, I don't know, in like July between your junior and senior year, what schools are you looking at? Right. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Like even looking back on it. Right. So um, there were there were very limited options when it came to finding scholarships uh, and the alternative that was recommended and proposed was that I stay home. And go to a community college for a couple of years and then transfer all my credits to a four-year college later. That would be less expensive. Actually, my older two sisters did that uh, and they, you know, basically stayed home and graduated from Rutgers, which was not my plan at all. Uh, ironically, my parents sent my, I, am, I come from a family of six. The three middle kids all got sent away to college and they had like more than four years of college paid for. <laughs> 
<laughs> because none of them actually finished in four years. And so like you can see why the youngest would look at the, the previous three experience and say, okay, that's going to be like, that's going to closely resemble my experience. So I get to like choose the school that I want to go to. And then yeah. somebody's, somebody's going to pay for it. So it's it kind of a shock, but uh, I did what all desperate yeah. seniors in, in high school do when they find out there's no money that I went to the, you know, the guidance counselor. And I said, how do I find money for college? And he said, well, <laughs> it's pretty late. Uh, you can apply for an army scholarship, an air force scholarship, a Navy scholarship, or you can wait and like see what's left in FAFSA. You're, you're actually pretty late for those scholarships and financial aid as well. And I actually knew that my parents, because they had been separated, hadn't like, hadn't even filed taxes for several years. So I couldn't, I couldn't file a FAFSA, right? You're like, oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> like the, you know, I think, I think, uh, you know, even back then I was like thinking like, how do I solve problems? Like that, it was a, it was a great lesson in problem yeah. solving. And I went through the like thought process. I was like, well, I wear glasses. So I'm, you know, like I probably shouldn't join the air force, right? Cause I can't fly. These are like, and yeah. I don't know anything about any of the services. I didn't do any research, but you know, I wear glasses, probably, you know, shouldn't join the air force. Uh, I don't really think I want to be at sea for like six months at a time. So I probably shouldn't join the Navy. Uh, there's like 300 jobs in the army. So I'll apply for an army scholarship. Like I didn't even apply for the other ones. Like, uh, <laughs> again, I had no, no guidance from my, from my parents, nobody helped helping me make decisions. And so I, I applied for an army RTC scholarship and I got a three-year scholarship. And so I went back to my parents and I was like, Hey, I just need one year paid for, you know, if I had done four years at a local community college, it would cost about the same amount of money. Like, can we just split the difference and call it good? Yeah. Um, and, you know, my original intent was just to do the, the four years of the, of being on active duty to pay back my scholarship. And uh, I ended up being a quartermaster officer. And then I ended up finding out like uh, when I was coming back from the invasion of Iraq, that the Air Force also had logistics officers. So I actually could have, <laughs> you know, I, I don't regret any of the decisions that I made, but it's always funny. Like when you look back on the decisions you make and why yeah. you make them and like the information you don't have. Right. Um, and sometimes it's information you don't have because you didn't do the work to look it up or to find out. Sometimes it's information that you don't have because you didn't even know what you didn't know. Yeah. You were supposed to find out, right? Like, and sometimes it's just information that you thought you knew, but it turns out it was it was incomplete or it was completely wrong. You know, when you talk about problem solving, I think we all kind of fall into those traps, no matter like what level of problem solver we are, right? Like we'd be a very high functioning problem solver. And there's some level of uncertainty and there's some level of just not having complete information. Um, and we don't, there's a difference and we don't know what those things are until hindsight and say, oh, if I had, if I had that piece of information, would I have made the same decision? You know, and then, you know, for me, here, here I am, you know, 20 plus years later and I'm a lieutenant colonel and I'm, I'm doing things in the army that I love to do. And I'm talking about things that I love to talk about and I have a passion for what I do. And I'm glad that I didn't have the information that might've led to a different decision. But at the time that was the route that I took and that brought me down the path of being in the army and being where I am today. Now, even that path was fun because I was in the army uh, as a quartermaster officer uh, and I actually got out of the army and went into the reserve, got off of active duty, went into the reserves uh, for three years and had the luxury of deploying for a year as a reservist while I was. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. And it was during that deployment that I was encouraged to come back on active duty. Uh, you know, this is this was after I had met my husband who changed my name. Um, <laughs> but because there was, a, there was a dual military aspect to it, uh, and I couldn't get the quartermaster branch to guarantee me an assignment with my husband if I came back on active duty, I was coached and mentored into force management, which actually, you know, I'm also extremely glad to have had the opportunity and to have been in the right place at the right time for the right person to bring me into a position and a role in the army that I've always loved more than I love or enjoyed yeah. being a quartermaster officer. Right and so I came back on active duty uh, and I, and I became a force management officer. That's awesome. The, yeah. I've, like I tell people all the time, like I've also been a, uh, an IT coordination, an IT coordinator for a power generation company and a contract negotiation officer, contract negotiator for a paving and construction firm. And people oh, wow. look at me all sideways and like, well, I mean, there's a lot, <laughs> there's, you know, we talk about broadening opportunities in the army uh, and I think they're great, 
but I think, you know, there's a lot of maturity that occurs in army professionals. If they step out of the army for two to three years and get to see what it looks like, not in the army. I think uh, there are things that we take for granted as being problems that the army has. And we think that they're army problems and they're not, they're organizational problems, right? Most organizations have similar problems or they have similar issues, but they look different, but you, but it doesn't mean, you know, the grass is greener on the other side. Uh, I always tell people the grass is always greener where you water it, you know, or if it's, if it looks extremely green, it's probably AstroTurf, which means it's not real. Well, hey, you mentioned broadening assignments. Uh, is what you're doing right now, is that considered a broadening assignment or tell us, tell us about what you're doing? Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm doing advanced civil schooling, which is very similar to GradSo. So a lot of captains are familiar with the GradSo program. After you're no longer a captain, it, it's a different process to request to go to uh, graduate school. But it's a, um, advanced civil schooling is an opportunity to do just school for 18 to 24 months with a an ad so that's three days per day that you're in that program, uh, but all your tuition is covered. And so I'm getting my MBA at the University of Texas, Hook'em, uh, <laughs> the McComb School of Business. And I'll, I'll graduate in May with my MBA and I'll owe uh, just about six years back to the Army. <laughs> so you're, you're down in Texas. So you're, you were uh, smack in the middle of uh, the snowpocalypse or what, what do we call it? Uh, so there's Snowvid. 21 there's no apocalypse there's the the ice age um so i I don't think they've settled on a on a on a term that's gonna be the term but it's yeah it was miserable is what it was (laughs) i had a i had a friend here who um left he went on leave to go to a hockey tournament with his son and it was down in texas and they were like wow we're gonna escape the snow for a little bit and go see some sun then they got down there and the snow followed so it's their fault. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so was uh, was tell us about that. Was that chaotic? Um. Well, it was. So we found out. We knew that there was there was going to be a snowstorm. We knew there was going to be rolling power outages because it, you know, the the Energy Reliability Commission of Texas, ERCOT, had already determined that there was not going to be enough power right? To sustain the increased demand for sub-freezing temperatures, right? Because everyone's going to turn their heat on, the heat's going to be on the whole time. And the heat's going to be on high because of sub-freezing temperatures, uh, which doesn't happen a lot. So people were expecting rolling outages anyway. Now, for people who are not from Texas, who have lived through snowstorms, you know, like, okay, it's a snowstorm, rolling power outages, that's weird, but okay, like I work from home. I don't, I don't need to worry about it too much. I'll, I'll figure it out. Yeah. So we wake up Monday morning and there's no power and it like, and it never turns on. It wasn't just rolling out. It was like, it just didn't turn on. We ended up with like three days, no power halfway through Monday, the water, the water went out because the, the water treatment facility lost power, no. um, which is a whole different issue because they're supposed to be like on backups and backups and backups. So the fact that they lost power is a whole different issue. I don't, I don't have all the all the AAR comments from that, but I'm sure they're not good. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, so we were three days without power, two and a half days without water. We have a, an awesome oven, stove, gas range that we bought when we moved here in 2019. It's, <laughs> it's got a safety feature that doesn't allow you to turn on the gas if there's no power. So like, you know, most people will at least like boil stuff, make, oh, yeah. soup, in, make soup in the dark or whatever. Uh, we, can, we couldn't cook. We might, we might as well have had an electric stove because we couldn't cook. Uh, fortunately, you know, we have, we have friends that are in our neighborhood that did have a little bit of power on Tuesday and a little bit of power on Wednesday. There, there was like reverse rolling outages. There was like rolling onages, yeah. <laughs> uh, but their stove worked. So we had like, we had soup with them on Monday night and we had breakfast with them on Tuesday and then we were at their house when the power was on getting warm uh, and in the interim right like we also you know I hate to tell people like because it's you know like when you talk about the environment right like we we I got in my car and I charged my phone and I stayed warm for a few hours yeah but, you know I think people say you know uh you know you're in the army so you should have been prepared like you like aren't you always prepared for weather? <laughs> not like I would say that the army has taught me to to be prepared to handle a situation in which I'm not prepared for yeah. more than the army has taught me to prepare for any situation. 
more often than not, even if you go back to like, you know, my participation in the invasion of Iraq of 03, it's been a lot of what do I, you know, like what we prepared for is not what we're engaging in or we're not what we're experiencing in. So how do we deal with not being prepared for, for actual events or the actual uh, reality? And so, you know, I think for my husband and I, my husband, who's retired from the military, our, our biggest thing was we were able to stay calm. Like it wasn't like yeah. a significant emotional event. There was no crying or whining or, you know, temper tantrums or fits or yelling, right? Like it was just like, okay, well, yeah, get another blanket. And uh, <laughs> if you're super yeah, cold, like- go out to the car, which I think, you know, for our 15 year old daughter, right? She's, you know, she's a sophomore in high school and she's, which she, what she learned from the situation is like, it's easy, it's easy to get through stuff if you stay calm. <laughs> <laughs> So chaos, I, I, I said, was it chaotic? Chaos would be a light term. Well, I mean, like, I would say that that's, it, it, it could have been a lot more chaotic. You know, there weren't a whole lot of like people out on the roads getting into accidents, thankfully, right? There were a few accidents, but I mean, like people didn't like burn down their house by like lighting a fire in their backyard or anything really crazy, right? Like, so it could have been a lot more chaotic. People weren't like doing crazy things. So yeah. you say chaotic and I, I literally think of like people running through the streets, like <laughs> screaming yeah. and running from fires and, you know, but you know, you could also say that boiling snow so that you can flush your toilet is a little chaotic. <laughs> yeah. I, I always, um, I always find like inspirational moments in, in those things like the, it, sometimes it, it takes so long to get things done like power. What are, who are the guys that hang power lines? The linesman? Is that the, the job, the occupation? I sure. imagine that there's a, there's a lot of bureaucracy in that, like to try to get something done, you know, like, but when a disaster happens, everybody comes together and they get like 10 times more of the work done. Or like here in Alaska, we had an earthquake and they've been trying, I was up here in 2011 and they were, you know, they were building part of the highway and they're still doing that. That was in 2011, but the earthquake happened and a bridge collapsed and there was a bridge back up and roads, you know, fixed within the week. Yeah. Well, I think even as we talk about like communities, right? Like I, I had never really been on Reddit before uh, that storm, but I mean, like I knew, like I knew we had a four by four, right? A truck. Uh, and so like I got on Reddit and I was like, Hey, anybody like in the, in the immediate vicinity of our home, like if you need something, if you need us to go get you something, if you need help getting somewhere or picking somebody up who's stranded a family member, let me know. Right. Like, and, and I wasn't the only person. And so there's an, there's an element now, especially with the connected world, right. Of, of people being able to extend their reach to help others in need in times like that. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, uh makes me think of like when we deploy also, you know, like we just, we were able to get things done and come together more teams of teams really start to shape out. And yeah, and you build those relationships so that, you know, some of those relationships ideally would be built before an emergency, right? But when you build a relationship in an emergency, you really are like, you understand how reliable somebody is or how, like if they're, if they're, if they're volunteering to help during that situation, then it's one of those things where you're like, well, this person is going to be there if I need them. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes we build relationships and we assume that the people that we're friends with are going to be there when we need them. And there's a lot of, you know, academically, there's a lot of like discussion about like what you do to build teams in advance, right? So when that, when you need to rely on each other, that team is there. And I'm not going to discount that, but there's something to be said for the team that gets built in the midst that because everybody who's there participating has been tested yeah right so joe you're a lieutenant colonel in the army you're also currently a student in texas a graduate student and um, you and i met through this community of practice that uh, you have used to really help connect all the little pockets of creativity that are igniting and sparking across the army what made you start connecting all those people and initiatives yeah, so I think it's a little unfair. Like, it's true that I am a lieutenant colonel, but to be fair, I got promoted while I was in my MBA program, so I haven't like had an actual lieutenant colonel job in the in the in the army yet. I'm still, you know, basically a major by experience, 
and and I don't want to downplay right because because it's an it's an important uh, milestone to make a lieutenant colonel, and I'm really thankful for that yeah. uh, honored. But but I it's uh, I don't want to be disingenuous with like my skill set or my knowledge or ex- expertise. But to be fair, you know I didn't have a solid like predetermined internship coming into the MBA program, but I knew that I was going to have to find something that was going to be gainfully employed through the army for the summer semester. So, you know, rather than reach out to like an ROTC battalion or a uh, recruiting battalion or something, something like that, which, which I could have done, or I could have gone and worked at the reception center at Fort Hood or something like that. I reached out to AFC right here in, in Austin, and I linked up with a guy that was leading an initiative at the UTDD, which is the University Technology Development Directorate. And he had been working with Colby Miller out at 82nd, and he had done some work with some other units across the army, linking them up with universities primarily. So he had asked me to just sort of just do some research on like the force structure, because that's what I do by trade, right? I'm a, I do force structure, MTOs and TDAs, the force structure of a division innovation cell, like what that would look like. And I was like, okay, well, let me do some research and let me look at, let me look at that. Like, that sounds like an interesting problem. I'd love to work on it. And I started to talk to people, I talked to Colby, I talked to, uh, it was then Colonel Cogville, I think he's been promoted to general officer now, but, you know, he started the, the partnership with Vanderbilt out at uh, 3rd Battalion, Rakhassan's 101st, and he was sort of like the, the goal, not just the gold standard, but he was the, like the, he was the, the guy that was blazing the path in the wilderness when there was nobody else doing it back when he was the brigade commander. And I talked to a bunch of other people, pockets of not just innovation in soft because I'd worked in soft, but other people who had you know produced some publications, right? Speaking to tactical level innovation, yeah. and I quickly realized that I was trying to solve a, I was trying to solve the wrong problem, right? Like I was given a solution that was masquerading as a problem. The solution wasn't force structure, you know. Force structure, you know, I think is is something that might be relevant many years down the line. But quite frankly, there is no such thing as division innovation. And, you know, we can build force structure to force something to exist. Uh, but there's also a lot of anecdotal evidence that that doesn't work in the army. And it, what that ends up doing is that it ends up stifling the growth of, of a new skill or expertise. The same way, right? Like, a, you know, we didn't, we didn't build, you know, cyber officers and then say, what is, what is, what does a cyber officer do? Yeah. Um, and I think I was probably had the the gentleman that was running that project, not PCS in the middle of the summer, I probably uh, would have had my feelings hurt and gotten some some very negative feedback because I didn't answer the question he asked me to answer. And he he quickly realized that I wasn't going to be able to answer the question he asked me to answer. But what I right. realized is the problem was that people were doing innovation, but there was no there was no connective tissue. There was nothing that connected innovators to other innovators. There was nothing that connected innovators to you know academia there was nothing that connected innovators to the the startup space or the technology space right like there's nothing that connected innovators to army futures command or aal or or the cdids or people army like other other labs or the rapid capabilities office like there was there was no connective tissue right and so the you know the first problem was like what is division level innovation or what is tactical level innovation what is that and then the second problem is, is that, is that something that needs to be defined better, like with some boundaries? And the reality is at this point, no, at this point, no, because it's not really anything yet, right? Like it's, it's a, it's almost like a prototype everywhere you look, like it's its own prototype, which isn't bad. It's just, we're, we're still learning and that's yeah. good. And what we're not doing those, we're not connecting those different learning instances and we're not learning from other people's learning. And so, you know, a lot of my research led to that, that major point, you know, commands, commands have to be willing to be transparent with each other, right? Like in less competition, so to speak, in who solves, who solves a problem and more competition in like how many different solutions can we come up with? Yeah. So that we can start looking at all these different solutions and saying, this this is worth prototyping further or demonstrating further or trying out for a longer period of time. But so is this, and so is yeah. this, and maybe these other three. Now looking at you know these six potential solutions, these other three are are maybe 
maybe not as good, or maybe they're partial solutions, right? So now we can start putting partial solutions together, Yeah. which you can't do if you don't communicate with people, if you don't share. And so even yeah. still, I've, all I've really done is I've, I've offered a space where people can connect and I've tried to invite people in to connect. And, you know, at this point, if I don't hop on the call, like I just host a weekly call and if I don't hop on the call, people leave, but I don't like, I am not the person who's sharing the information, right? Like I'm not like, nobody's learning anything from me. And so I don't even have to be there, but we haven't even gotten to where people just call in. And if nobody's yeah. there, they, they wait to see who calls in and then they just start I, talking. I, th- I think that that sort of proves your point that it's got it. Like we need a space to, to facilitate it, right? We need the connective yeah. tissue. Right. Yeah. So you've been like, you've been a problem solver from a young person as a student and you're creating organizational structures and we're talking about tactical level innovation and getting these ideas into it. Who's coming up with these ideas? Well, I think it's everybody, right? Like it's, it's everybody who participates and you look at 18th Airborne Corps and they've got a ton of people participating in ideas and not just ideas, but like bringing actual solutions to the table, right? Like, and, and right now, most of it is, you know, ironically, like going to be software development applications that are, are facilitating in a lot of ways, things that, that we could have and should have been doing for a long time, but never had the resources in terms of knowledge, like resident knowledge, skills, and attributes in a force that wasn't trained for that, right? Like, but now we've got soldiers that just know how to do that stuff. Yeah. And they like to like, that's, that's what they do in their spare time because that's, that's their side hustle anyway. And so like, you know, and I, this is the way I put it when I talk to 25th ID, right? Like you don't even have to look for low hanging fruit. You've got fruit all <laughs> over the ground. Yes. Yeah. Pick up the fruit so, that's on the ground because you, because it's everywhere and then recognize the person who did it. Right. And then somebody else is going to say, Hey, well, I solved this problem. Oh, that's, I'm going to recognize you too. And if it's a three-day pass or a four-day pass, commander's coin or, or an AAM, like whatever it is, right? Yeah. It doesn't have to be huge. It just has to be some kind of recognition that says, I value your contribution to our readiness. And ultimately, right? Like we talk about like, well, should division commanders or brigade commanders be doing innovation? Absolutely. Right? They should be solving problems that affect their readiness because that's what they get paid to do. Yeah. Quite frankly, they're already doing it and they don't know, or they don't recognize it as innovation. But right. really, innovation is just the application of new ideas to solve problems, right? Like at its very core and its bare bones, when you peel back all the bureaucracy and all the, you know, misassociations or connotations, innovation is just, I came up with an idea to solve this problem. We had a problem, we solved it. And now that's yeah. not our problem. So that's, uh, I mean, there's, there's always going to be risk in trying something new. How, as, as a leader, how can I remove the risk or, I mean, do we even call it risk mitigation or risk avoidance or what, what do we chalk that up to be? Well, I think there's ways to mitigate risk. I think mitigating risk is probably the correct term when we think of the risk aversion nature, especially in the army. But I think Looking at it as risk in the first place is a misnomer. And I think that that has to do with command climate and culture. It's not Mm -hmm. risky to say we have a problem, come up with as many solutions as you can think of. There's no Mm -hmm. risk in that, right? And there's no risk in teasing those solutions out until there's something that, that really makes sense. And there's no risk in doing like a, you know, there's limited risk in doing a small scale prototype. And a lot of times you can do that with 3D printing, additive manufacturing in the term, in terms of software application, right? Like there's almost no resources required to do small scale development, you know, locally. And the benefit of even just going through those iterations to the organ, like the benefit to the organization, the team building skills that you get out of that are these intangible things that you don't realize that you get by allowing those things to happen in your organization. And those team building events translate across phases of war even, right? Like if you've got a close-knit team that solved problems in garrison, then they know they can rely on each other to solve problems in the field or on a training event or on a deployment. And I think that there's, there's value in that. And so I think there's an element of looking at it differently so that you don't see it as a risk, but you see it as an opportunity. But as leaders, right, we can facilitate that by encourage, like not just encouraging 
the, that teamwork and collaboration, but but rewarding it and legitimately evaluating it, right? Like we, an organization will perform what it is, what it's measured against. And people will perform to the standard that they're measured against, right? So if you tell me problem solving or collaboration is important, but you measure me or evaluate me based on whether or not I do something better, faster, or more than my peer, then collaboration isn't important to you. That's a really good point. What's important to you is competition. Competition is important to you. And you think that competition is going to build across the board better leaders and better results. So if collaboration is important to you, you have to take away that competition. You can have other ways, other ways to compete that are healthy, that are not, I can't tell you my secret because I'm counting on coming out ahead of you. Yeah. And that's the only way that I can count on being promoted or getting my next job that I'm looking for or getting to be first in line for that KD job, especially among officers. And, you know, for officers, our timeline is very tight, especially when you think of lieutenants and captains. There's not a lot of time in there to to not come out ahead of others, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And so as a culture in the army, we at some point need to look at ourselves and say, what what kind of leaders do we want coming out of captain to major? Yeah. And then because these are the kinds of leaders we want, this is what we need to evaluate against. And, and I don't know that, and I'm not in, like, I'm not in those conversations, but I don't know that anyone's looking at that. I hope they are, right? Because the culture of the army is changing in a way that's going to require us to be more collaborative and to be more, you know, like we've always been, you know, we always talk about being one team, one team, one fight is, you know, like, but it's, there's like some caveats that go against it. And so we can't all be fighting for the top spot and think that we're going to, we're going to have like this healthy collaborative environment. So um, doing all this stuff, innovation, it, it takes money, you know, time, space, people to carry the things out. It's, I know in our initiative, our, our innovation initiative at the brigade, Sparworks were focused on the the no to low cost prototypes that we can rapidly create and iterate on, and then we try to match those solutions against you know a manufacturer of something so we can get exactly what we proved. Because at the tactical level, we're not we're not developers, we're not manufacturers, you know. Right, and and we and we can't as an army afford to do a new every two upgrade for every unit, right? Like it's, it's not fiscally achievable. And so I think there, there, there at some point has to be like this, this cognizance, right? Like that technology is outpacing us. And so maybe the solution today is the solution for this unit who needs a solution and the solution tomorrow for the unit that needs it tomorrow might not be the same. Right. And there's a lot of risk in that as well. There is, I mean, legitimately, but I think we risk more in, in not acknowledging it than we do in acknowledging it and trying to find a solution to even that. And there are people smart enough in the army to work together to find a common solution, right? That kind of at least mitigates risk on both sides. And, yeah. and I think, you know, until we open those discussions up to everybody, right? Like we have these very stovepiped organizations, these very like hierarchical organizations, you know, this organization looks at what a, what a, this type of function does and this organization looks at what this type of function does and are they connected theoretically yes but they're not solving problems together mm-hmm. right and they're not necessarily solving problems with the actual people who do it they you know they are to some extent but not they're not embedded with them right so they're not receiving this feedback loop of the people who who are down in the motor pools or down in the in the orderly rooms or down in the training rooms right like solving those problems that that they didn't they didn't know they had, or they didn't think of, or they, they decided was a, a safe enough risk to push down to the unit. Um, yeah. And, and all like, you know, pushing risks down to a unit because it's not a huge risk. That's fine. Right. And supplying a, a good enough solution in terms of, you know, whatever kit we give to units, a good enough kit in the hands of a, of an innovator right down in the unit, tactical level innovator is good enough. Yeah. And that's not bad, but to not acknowledge that somebody else is, is carrying the brunt of the problem solving for that last mile is, uh, I think, wrong. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this creative question 
you you mentioned fiscally and and, and we talked about budget. If you were given an extra one million dollars of budget, what would you uh, what would you spend it, or how would you spend it, and why? I don't know. I think I might ask somebody to tell me what I should spend it on, right? Like just like open it up and say, you know, like almost kind of like a, you know, we talk about Shark Tank and the Air Force has got Spark Tank. But I mean, I, I don't even know if $1 million goes towards building, you know, a collaborative digital marketplace, digital uh, collaboration tool, digital, an army-wide digital platform yeah. for collaboration. If it does, then that's what I would spend it on first, right? Because that's in, in all of our talks and all of my, in all of my talks with everybody who's doing innovation below the army level, right? Yeah. What I notice is that none of it's connected. And even at the army level, it's not really connected, right? Like there are people at the army level at the, you know, at the three and four star level as well that don't know who's doing what and what problems aren't and who's not doing what, right? Like what problems aren't being solved out there because nobody's working on it because no, because somebody thinks somebody else is working on it. Yeah. You know, when we start to, when we start to democratize that information and make it available across the force, when we start to make it available, you know, we do air our dirty laundry and we do, you know, make ourselves vulnerable internally, but we also open up the aperture of problem solvers to everyone. And like, when we talk about open code stuff and open source stuff and the innovative leaps in technology that have occurred because, because we've opened up yeah. a problem, then you almost have to ask, why aren't we doing that in the army? And so if I had a million dollars, my instinct would be to spend it on that. That's phenomenal. Love it. Yeah, there's definitely some creative things to be done. Um, hey, can I ask you about your favorite leadership lesson? Yeah, that's a hard one, right? I think I've had a lot, especially in business school, you, you get like there's tons of nuggets that get thrown out every day by, by professors in, in an MBA program. And I've learned a lot over the course of my almost 20 years in the Army. But I think what rings the most true, right? And, and I think everybody's heard it, but it's, it's so cliche because it's so true, right? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter. And that goes back to even like, you know, organizations and people perform what they're measured against, right? Like, because that's the culture, because it doesn't matter what you say is important or what your going in strategy is. If you're not willing to address the paradigm shift that has to happen culturally, to achieve that strategy, it doesn't matter, you know? Yeah. And I think we can look at a lot of things that the army has undertaken over the last 10 years or more that have been new ideas. They've been good ideas, but they missed the mark because the culture didn't support it and the culture yeah. didn't change. And I'm being honest without pointing any fingers, but I think, you know, there's a lot of people out there in a lot of organizations who would say, that's my organization. Because it's not just one organization. There's it's a lot where, you know, leaders have great ideas or leaders were had great recommendations, great ideas that were given to them, recommended to them that they accepted, right? Because not not every leader, right, has great ideas. A lot of leaders have people with great ideas that that they listen to. Yeah. And in either case, if that leader didn't do anything to address the culture, it's irrelevant that they accepted or moved forward with a great idea because the, the organization never fully realized or achieved it. And they might've gotten towards it and they might've made progress and that's good. But it's one thing to say, we are doing this better. And it's another thing to say, we are doing this completely different. And because of that, we're doing it way better. That's awesome. That is awesome. So hey, we've talked about tactical level innovation. We talked a little bit about some leadership stuff and, and about who you are and, and getting to know what drives you. Is there anything else that you know, we haven't talked about that you think the listeners should know? Yeah, I don't know. I think we covered a lot of it, right? Like I would just reiterate yeah. that everybody, right, is kind of responsible for the culture that's around them, right? Your organizational culture has different levels, right? There's the the immediate unit or level of organization that you're in, there's your higher headquarters, there's the army, there's, you know, your peers, right? Uh, the warrant officer mafia, the captain mafia, right? Like whatever we, you know, whatever group that is across different organizations or different units, but peer level, right? And then there's just like 
you talked about earlier, right? Like those team, team of teams, like the people that you build as your network to get different things done. And I think the, the more we start to find the intersectionality of those different groups and teams and the culture of them, where the culture meets so that now we can start to do things together and cross over different little nooks and crannies of innovation and thought and perspective, then I think we can really, as an, as an army, start to open up how we look at problems, how we you know, ask for help to solve them, and how we collaborate to bring partial solutions together. That's awesome. Right on. So I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Uh, it's been fantastic yeah. talking to you and learning from your experiences. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. I, I feel like I've been like just talking all over the place. Sometimes I feel like, you know, I'm, I don't feel like I'm the one that people should listen to. A lot of times I feel like I'm just a, one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, as I've heard it before. But I think, you know, when we start to see ourselves that way, that, you know, none of us are experts and none of us are unqualified, that we can really start to work together across all the boundaries that traditionally limit our collaboration. Yeah. So start, start, start problem solving young, look for learning opportunities in the chaos. It's not always chaos. Get ideas from your people. Be the connective tissue in your organization and collaborate like crazy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's awesome. I can have said it hey. better myself. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if listeners want to reach out to you, are you on social media or can you be reached by email? Uh, yeah, I can be reached by email on the global jacqueline.m.newell.mil. I'm also jacqueline.newell at Gmail. I'm on LinkedIn. That's really probably the only social media that I use regularly. And I'm also on Teams for whatever that's worth. (laughs) (laughs) Right on, right on. Well, Joe, Lieutenant Colonel Noel, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. This has been Azimuth Check. Thank you for listening. If you want to know more about what Sparworks has going on, check out www.sparworks.com. Our paratroopers are up to some very exciting stuff creating some awesome solutions to some very tough challenges that only we experience in the Arctic. Thank you.